Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. If you are not yet involved in the daily Bible reading program, for whatever reason, we are trying to dispel this year, we're going to try to dispel reasons why you may not be involved. Uh, you may say, I don't have the time. Well, we're going to try to dispel that reason. I don't, uh, I don't understand it. We're going to try to dispel that reason too. We're going to do whatever we can to get you involved in our daily Bible reading program. And so uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing before we look at his word together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Guide our thoughts. Improve our thinking. And help us to honor you as we prepare for the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 63, verse 15. Now, that's where we ended last week on the prayers. And I want to start there before we go into 65 and 66. Isaiah 63, verse 15. Now, I have two things that I want to say to you before I begin. Number one, I'm going to take Isaiah 63, 64, 65, and 66 literally. If I don't take it literally, I would take it figuratively, which means that I would look at certain elements of this, pas these, this passage of Scripture, and I would try to spiritualize the realities that are described here. For instance, I would take the city of Jerusalem and I would spiritualize it and say, well, the city of Jerusalem really refers to something else. But I'm not going to do that. When you see the city of Jerusalem, think city of Jerusalem. If I see the wolf and the lamb, which is described in this passage of Scripture, lying down together and getting along... Some people would say that's figurative. It really talks about bad people and good people getting along. A prey and, uh, and a, a, what do you call the one who preys on the prey? The predator getting along. Don't, I'm not doing that this morning. I want to take it literally. And uh, the reason why is because I think that is the best way to understand Scripture is to take it literally. If you cannot find any sense in taking it literally, then God expects us to seek for a figurative point. Now, I remember many, many years ago a mother who was consoling her child who was dying. And the child looked at her mom and said, and said to mom, is it true that the street of the city of Jerusalem is really pure gold? Mom didn't know what to say. Mom looked at the child and said, if the Bible says the city is pure gold, the street is pure gold, then the street is pure gold. Amen? A teacher was teaching a, a, a group of kids. These are little kids. 
and explaining to the kids that this is what the Bible says, but this is what the Bible means instead of what it says. And a little girl raised her hand and said, well, if God didn't mean what he said, why didn't he say what he meant? Now, think of that, okay? Because I want to say to you right off the bat, in chapter 63, 4, 5, and 6 of Isaiah, these passages are addressed to Israel, not to us directly, directly to Israel. But we are participants with the nation of Israel, ethnically speaking. We're not talking about political Israel at this point. I think uh, that uh, we're not to the place yet where we see Israel fulfilling what God promised he's going to do to Israel for Israel. Um, but I think that what we're seeing is a good first step in the direction that we need to be looking to. But this is addressed to Israel, but we will be participating in the blessings of Israel and in the glory of Israel. How do I know that? Well, look at chapter 65, verse 1. A couple of disjointed references first. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, God is speaking to the children of Israel, and he says, I sought by those who did not ask for me. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. And I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Now, he then compares Israel to that nation. And he says, now look, to you guys, I have stretched my hands out all day long, and I'm stretching them out to a rebellious people in the very next verse. He says, I'm stretching them out to a people who walks in the way that is not good according to their own thoughts. And because of your rebellion against me, you as a nation are going to suffer the consequences. But I want you to know that I care about the rest of the world. Now, Paul, I just want to say this. We don't have to go there. We probably don't have time to do that. But Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 10, uses this passage of Scripture. Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 10, actually quotes this verse of Scripture to describe the fact that God is working among the Gentiles in this day and age in which we live. And most of us know that we are Gentiles, right? We are saved Gentiles, but the implication of this verse of Scripture is that saved Gentiles get to participate, get to enjoy, get to be a part of the blessings and the glory that God is promising to Israel. That's the point that he's making. In fact, if you have time to do this, you may want to look at Rome, Romans chapter 11 where God describes it this way. He says, take a look at a tree, an olive tree. That olive tree is originally Israel. But I've broken some branches off of Israel because of Israel's unbelief. And what I've done is I've grafted the Gentiles into, I've grafted a wild olive branch into that tame 
domesticated olive tree. You take a look at that. You take a look at it. Then the Apostle Paul says, listen, I can do that. I want you to know the tree is the same. The roots are the same. When I go on my walks, there's one tree that I walk when I go out and I, I when I go out in one street, there's one tree that has a has two limbs. And in the springtime, the blossoms on the one limb are totally different than the blossoms on the other limb because the one limb was grafted into the tree. It's a big tree now. But the root system is still the same. And God says, I've broken off branches that represent Israel and I've grafted in Gentiles. But in that very same passage of Scripture, he says, guess what? I'm grafting Israel back into that tree because the day is coming when all of Israel is going to be saved. Now, I don't look at that, you know, it's a great illustration. And it encourages me to look at these passages of Scripture in a literal sense And so I want you to do that. And the reason why I want you to do that is because when we're finished here in a few minutes, the application that we're going to settle on is chapter 66, verses 10 and 11 and following. So look at that just for a second in anticipation of how we're going to end the message this morning, okay? In verses 10 and 11... The Bible says, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All you who love her, rejoice for joy with her. And all you who mourn for her, that you and I may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you, you, you may drink deeply and be delighted with, what does it say there? With the abundance of her glory. That's where God wants us to be. That's what God wants us to see as far as his plan and purpose is concerned. Now, we can quickly get there. It doesn't really take that long to get there. But I want to start at verse 15 of chapter 63, real quick. It's where we, it's the prayer. It's the prayer of penitence. And we know that this is a prayer of penitence. If you have a heading in your Bible that says a prayer of penitence, we know that that's exactly what it is. Because looking down at chapter 64, verse 5, what does the Bible say? Lord, you're angry with us. You are really indeed very angry with us because we've sinned. But look at, the, look at the prayer in verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation. Look down from heaven. The people are frustrated. We, 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 we know that. They're frustrated because they see God as restrained in his willingness to help them through their problems. They have a question there. Are you restrained in verse 15? And then they have a second question, verse 17. Oh, Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Why are we the way we are, Lord? They don't, they, they're blaming the Lord for it for the most part. And then they, they're begging the Lord to return to, the, to them. Because here's what's happened to, their in, to the Lord's inheritance in verse 17. Your holy people have possessed it 
but a little while. We've only been in the Holy Land for a little while. We've only possessed your promised land for us for a short period of time. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. We're just like a pagan nation. And that, by the way, is no doubt why God says, wait a minute, here's what I do with pagan nations. I reach out my hands to them as well. And then in, verse, in chapter 64, verses 1 and 2, after they're in their frustration, they're asking the Lord to look down from heaven and do something, they even go further and say, oh, that you would rent the heaven, tear the heaven apart, and come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. When you've done this in the past, it's been effective. When we were standing before the, the, the mountain where you gave the Ten Commandments and you caused it to rumble and fire and smoke and all of that, it was pretty effective, Lord. If you'd just come down and you'd shake the earth a little bit, maybe we would all wake up. That's their prayer. That's their prayer. You know, I, Job, I don't know if I said this during a morning worship service in the last uh, month or so, but... I have a book at home that gives all the questions God asks or, or almost all the questions in the Bible that God asks people. And he kind of says this to Job, don't you wish sometime that you could take the earth by its ears? This is how he describes it. Don't you wish you could take the earth by its ears and shake out all the wickedness? That's pretty good. Because I, I wish I could do that. But I can't. And God said to Job, Job, you can't do that either. I'm the only one who can do it. I'm the only one who can do it. You see. So in chapter 64, verse 5, he says, you're indeed very angry with us. You're very angry with us. And, and we are like an unclean thing and all of our righteousness. If you want to remember where this passage of Scripture is that we use all the time, all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. It's like, you know, when I was a kid, I, I hate to admit this is true, but I used to play in the dirt when I was a kid. In the woods, we would get dirty, we would get muddy, and many times I would come home and I would be so dirty, and my brothers and sisters would be so dirty. Right? Isn't it true? We just, then mother would just look at us and say, and, uh, and, and, and the torture then of going through getting all cleaned up and getting baths and getting cleaned up was just horrendous. But that's the point that he's making here. That's the point that he's making here. God, you're very angry with us. And notice in their frustration, they have two more questions. Two more questions. Look down at verse, uh, verse 12. Will you restrain yourself because of these things that we are experiencing? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Lord, will you hold your peace? Will you stay silent and not do anything to help us? And why are they so upset? Look at verse 10. Your holy cities are wilderness. Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation, our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Of course we're frustrated. But Lord, how long is this going to go on? How much more do we have to deal with? 
was the question that they're asking. And so that is when God, that is when God begins answering their concerns in chapter 65. And he says to them, he says, well, listen, what I'm, whatever you think I'm doing, the one thing you need to understand is I'm doing the right thing. Whatever it is, it's right. Because God, the author of the universe, the creator of the world and the universe, never does the wrong thing. He never can make a mistake. He can never sin. He always does what's right. So if it doesn't look right to us, guess who's wrong? We're the ones who are wrong. We don't understand it. We can't put it in perspective. And so God says to the children of Israel, listen, I, I reach my hands out to nations who don't even know me, don't love me, not called by my name, and they respond to me. And I reach my hand out to you guys, and you just rebel, and you do what you want to do, and you don't care what I say, and you don't live the way I want you to live. And I need you to understand that in verse 6, he says, you think I'm silent, but behold, I will not keep silence, but will repay. may look to you like I'm being silent, but I'm not. And he said, how do you know that I'm not silent? Because payday is coming. Payday is coming. And I'm going to, you know, it's like everybody's going to line up and they're going to get their wages, you know. Like going into the paymaster years ago, the line was there and you went up to the window and you got your paycheck and you... And you walked out, and the next person got their paycheck and walked out. It's like God's got a paycheck for everybody. And that paycheck is going to be based on your, your life, your works, your unbelief in this particular case. Because that's what he's focusing on. He's saying, you think you, know, you think you might get away with something. You may think that I've missed something, and I don't understand how this world is working, and I don't care how it's working, and, and, I, and, I, and I don't want to do anything about the iniquity and the sin and all the social evils that are going on. Let me throw that in because that's a big part of this. He says, but I do, and a paycheck, every single person is going to get a paycheck. And the paycheck's going to be perfectly suited to what they did. That's what the Bible says. He doesn't just say it once, but he continues to say it in this particular passage of Scripture from here to the end of the book. He repeats it again. But having said that, I want you to note something in verses 8 through 10 here. We're going to read these three verses. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. Boy, when you see me writing paychecks out and giving paychecks to people, you're going to think that, man, this whole earth is a mess and, and there's no, no good paychecks out there. He said, but I want you to know something. I'm not going to destroy everything. Now, you and I grow gardens. Well, some of us, grow, we, we used to grow gardens, but... Uh, some of us grow gardens, and you don't, you don't throw the whole, you don't go to your tomato plant, and just because you see a, a bad tomato on the plant, you don't say, oh, the whole thing's bad, and you rip the whole thing out, do you? No, and that's what he's saying here. He's saying, think of a cluster of grapes. You may have a couple of bad grapes on the cluster, but you don't throw the whole cluster out just because you have some bad grapes on the cluster, do you? No, you don't do that. 
And he says, I'm not going to do that either. He says, I have a blessing for my servants. I will not destroy them. I, look at verses 9 and 10. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah and an heir of my mountain, from Judah as an heir for my mountains. That's mountains, it refers to the nation of Israel. It refers to the land of Palestine. It refers to the Holy Land. That's my favorite description of that. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind. You see why I want to go literally with this passage of Scripture? Because he picks, the, he picks the beautiful meadows of Sharon, which are along the Mediterranean Sea, and he talks about how they're going to be restored and places for, for, for animals to live and dwell. And, and then he goes clear over to the Jordan River, to the Valley of Acre, where, by the way, I, we won't get into that story, and he shows how that's going to be restored as well. And uh, people hated that Valley of Acre because of what it represented. Uh, we'll get into that another time. But anyway, having said that, notice what he says constantly in verses 8, 9, and 10. He talks about, I will do this for my servants. I will do this for my servants. I will do this for my people. I will do this for my elect. And you and I are included in that group of people if we love the Lord. We're included. This is for you and me. This is for you and for me. If you, and here's the application I want to give you right away. See? If you can identify throughout this past, these passages of Scripture, clear to the end, with my servant, if you can identify with my elect, my servants, my people, and who I describe my people in verse 10, my people are people who seek me. But if you can identify with them, guess what? You get to share in the blessings. You get to share in the glory of Israel. Uh, we read in Psalm 119, and, and the reference there was my servants. I'm your servant, Lord. Some people don't like that. Uh, they say, boy, couldn't he pick another word for that? Well, my servant is what he wants us to be, serving him. Loving Him, living for Him, seeking Him, magnifying Him, worshiping Him. And so he says in verses 13 and following, let me just simply say this to you. Oh, by the way, by the way, let me say this as well in verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, if, if you can't, here's the, here's the implication. If you cannot identify as a servant of God, a person who is willing to seek God, if you ignore Him, if you don't want to live for Him, if you don't plan your life around His plans and purposes, if He is just not a part of your life at all, then you fall under the indictment of verses 11 and 12. But you, he's addressing you just put your name right in there. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for many. Well, those, are, those are names for false gods. Therefore, I will number you for the sword. You shall all bow down to the slaughter. And here's the reason. Because when I called, you didn't answer. When I spoke, you did not hear. But you did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I don't delight. 
And if that doesn't seem important enough, he repeats it again in chapter 66, verse 4. Word for word. <laughs> there it is. You know, when, when uh, parents, you understand how frustrating it is when you call your children and they don't listen. Right? You call them again, they don't listen. Call them again, they don't listen. It's frustrating, isn't it? It's frustrating. It's no less frustrating to the Lord when he calls and we don't answer. He has important things to share with us and we don't follow through. But having said that, this passage, this is all about contrast. God, God constantly, what I did in one of my Bibles is I took a marker and I highlighted all the good passages of Scripture. And I took another marker, a different color, and I highlighted all the bad passages of Scripture. And this, this section is a, is a bunch of contrast. He contrasts the good with the bad, the right with the wrong, the good with the evil, the righteous with the evil. He, he's constantly doing that. And so we want to focus on the good part of this. And so he says in verse 13, here's an interesting contrast right here. Behold, my servants shall eat, but you will be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. My servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart. And et cetera, et cetera, and on it goes. Until finally we come to a good note where God says, listen, I want people to live in this earth I want people to bless themselves in this earth by their obedience with me. I want them to do that because the day is coming when all of the formal tr former troubles are forgotten. That's verse 16. And I've hidden it all from my eyes. And then here's the verse you want to look at. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And all of us who get to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. Paul, Peter talks about it in the New Testament. John talks about it in the New Testament. Isaiah talks about it a couple of times here at the end of the book of Isaiah. And the point is that when we get into the new earth, we're not going to look back on this old earth and say, oh, I don't know. Things were better in the old earth than they are in the new earth. No. We're not even going to remember it. It's going to be so, so stark of a contrast that we won't even remember what has happened in this time in the earth in which we live when we're under the curse. In the new earth, the curse will be lifted. Now, I want, to read, I want to read a couple of verses of Scripture here, uh, verses 18 and 19, all right? But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. Hope that's you and me. And voice, the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Now... Um, I want us to look at the next three verses because they're problem verses. 
because we're automatically thinking of the new heaven and the new earth, and we're thinking, oh, well, finally, this is, this is the eternal state. This is when God lifts the curse of the earth, and he rejuvenates the earth, and he changes the earth to the point where, my, we only have, we have no sin. We have righteousness and peace and prosperity and no sickness. We're in our transformed bodies, in our resurrected bodies. Life couldn't be better than that. But then we have these next three verses that kind of pose a little bit of a problem, actually four verses, and I want to read them. I want you to see what it says here because I want to answer the problem that we have with these verses. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. The implication is an infant will live longer. Nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days will live to ripe old ages. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. How on earth do you reconcile that verse of Scripture with what he has just said in verses 17, 18, and 19? Well, the one thing you have to do with this passage of Scripture is you have to understand that there is a millennial reign of Christ leading up to the new heaven and the new earth. And often God gives to us the ultimate, ultimate thing, and then he takes us back and leads us up to that point. Ultimately, ultimately, we're going to see a new heaven and a new earth, and, and the millennial reign of Christ will probably look like the new heaven and the new earth in many ways, but there's still going to be sin, and there's still going to be death. The Bible says in verse 21, they shall build houses, they shall plant vineyards, they shall eat their fruit, they shall not build, and another inhabit, they shall not plant, and another eat, for as the days of a tree, an old tree, that's hundreds of years old perhaps, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Now, the only thing I'm going to say to you at this point is think about this for a minute. This is addressed to Israel. This is addressed to Israel that God is going to save. God is going to convert. He's going to bring them to saving faith during the millennial reign of Christ. All right? Now, if we get technical with you about that, we have a tribulation period coming, and um, there are views on that. We're not looking at that today, but the fact is there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ, and during that thousand-year reign of Christ, God is going to really work among the Jewish people. What, where are we during that period of time? Do we get to experience this, or are we going to be dead in our graves? No. We will be resurrected, and we will enjoy in the blessings and the glory of the millennial reign of Christ. So we don't fall under any of the indictments of death and sin that are listed here in this particular passage of Scripture. And you see, how can this coexist? How can you have, how can you have people living in resurrected bodies, living on the earth at the same time that you have people not living in resurrected bodies? Well, Jesus, Scott, you're the one who cleared that up for me. Well, I mean, I cleared it up, but I appreciated your comment. Well, didn't Jesus do that? He lived here for 40 days. 
uh, and people were trying to identify the difference between his physical body and their physical bodies because apparently it all looked like Jesus was pretty human, but at the same time, he was living as a resurrected human being. See? That's all I want to say about that because when you read this passage of Scripture, you're going to have that kind of a question, and I just want you to understand that God has an answer for that. God has an answer for that, not just in this passage of Scripture, but is an answer in many other passages of Scripture as well. Now, let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this up. Go to chapter 66, verses 1 through 4. We'll skip over everything else today, and we go to the conclusion. Chapter 66, verses 1 through 4. What's the application that you and I ought to have? Well... Here it is. I'm going to read these four verses, make a simple comment, and then we'll move on to the positive side of things. Heaven is my throne, says the Lord. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hands has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one thing do I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. I mean, think about this. Think of the momentum building up for the people of Israel during the millennial reign of Christ when they want to rebuild the, uh, the, the structures that God had given to them originally and want to rebuild the temple, for instance. And, and here the Lord is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't think about this. Not that he's not saying don't build the temple, but he's listening, he's saying, if you're depending on the temple to save you, you're in really deep trouble. Number one, I'm not confined to it. And number two... Just because you go through the spiritual exercises of everything that you want to do, you need to understand that what I care about is a what? A poor and contrite spirit and one who trembles at my word. That's the negative side. If you and I want to uh, be right with God, we got to have a contrite spirit. we got to be poor in spirit. As Jesus said in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For they shall see God. But here's the positive side of it. The positive side is chapter 66, verses 10, uh, 13 and 14. Through 13 14. And I read it earlier. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. So I need to rejoice. I need to be glad for her. I need to love her. And rejoice, even in my mourning, because all that's happened to Israel over the years and will continue to happen until Jesus returns, by the way, so that I can feed and be satisfied and drink deeply with delight on the abundance of her glory. It's coming. You look at everything that's gone on in the world today and you see all of the challenges that we have and everything. You'll remember that God is come, Jesus is coming back to this earth. He's going to set up his kingdom on this earth and the glory of Israel will be ours. You can call it the Jewish church and you can call it the Christian church. 
or the Gentile church. It doesn't matter. God says, I bring both groups of people together, and I intend to save, save as many people as I want to save. I intend to save as many people who will come and be saved. And so that's, uh, that's really what's really cool. In verse 12, and let's close with this in verse 12, because he wants us to put this in. Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. A peaceful river in describing what he's going to do to extend his peace. They're worried about him withholding his peace and being silent. And he's saying, I'm going to extend my peace like a river. And he says, you know, as far as the Gentiles, the best way to describe the Gentiles, I guess, coming into uh, the spiritual church, if I may put it that way now at this point, is that we'll describe them as as a rushing, rushing stream coming down through the mountains over the rocks. I mean, God's already called us a wild olive branch and, uh, and Israel, the domesticated branch, so to speak. Isn't this, isn't this great stuff when you think about it? Isn't it great stuff? And so uh, let's, uh, let's do this in, in, in closing. Let's turn, to, uh, let's turn to our hymn books. It would be the first time you're using your hymn books. They've been, they've been there a while. We've not, uh, uh, it's, it's okay to look at them. Turn to page 47, and let's sing as we close the song, Like a River Glorious. Like a river glorious is God's perfect Father in heaven, thank you for the, the passages of Scripture in Isaiah that talk about your peace like a river. We thank you for leading the psalm writer to write the way he did. We thank you, Lord, that your peace will be over all victorious. We thank you, Lord, that if we stay, our hearts are stayed on you, that we seek you, And we live for you, and we serve you, and we love you, and we magnify you, and we praise you, and we thank you, and we we want your will to be done in our lives, and in our nations, and in our families. Father, all will be well, and we'll be at perfect peace and rest. And we look for the day when the Prince of Peace returns to set up that kingdom. Lord, I pray for those who may not know you as Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would 
Bring them to saving faith. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to want to seek you, to find you, to come to you, to come to the cross and admit their sin. And, Lord, as we've admitted our sin and as we've come to the cross and recognized that you're the one who is willing to save us from all of our sin through faith in Christ, your Son, who paid the penalty, you have given us peace. And we pray for it. We pray for it this week. We want to go and leave this place, and we want to be at peace. We want to live for you, and we want to come back to praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.